This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined today by journalist extraordinaire Ted Olson. Hey, Morgan. I know you have editorial capacities too, but I feel like this is like a journalism week for you and a journalism day. As our audience will soon find out. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, always fun to be on Quick to Listen when Mark has to travel, so glad to be back. All right, so who's joining us today, Ted? We are joined by Ben Dooley. He's a reporter based in Beijing, China. But the reason we want to talk to him today is for a piece that he wrote back in 2014 for Mother Jones magazine, a major piece there called Who's Behind Newsweek. We'll get into that shortly. But uh, welcome to Quick to Listen, Ben. Hi, Ted. Hi, Morgan. Good to be on. Great to have you, Ben. All right. So I'm sure our audience is very intrigued about why we're having you on the show for a piece that was written in 2014, and we're going to get into it right now. Last week, Newsweek magazine published a story that began with this editorial note. As we were reporting this story, Newsweek Media Group fired Newsweek editor Bob Rowe, executive editor Ken Lee, and senior politics reporter Celeste Cast for doing their jobs. Reporters Josh Keefe and Josh Shaw were targeted for firing before an editor persuaded the company to reverse its decision. The editorial note went on to laud that the editorial staff had felt that their reporting had been compromised. They accused Newsweek publishers of violating journalism ethics, such as showing parts of the drafts to subjects in the story. The editorial note said that the staff, quote, resisted their efforts to influence the story, and that finally their story was written and edited free of interference from company executives. At this point, you're probably wondering what the story is about and why we're talking about it today on Quick to Listen. So here's the headline of it. Why is the Manhattan DA looking at Newsweek's ties to a Christian university? We'll get to this question posed by the headline later on in the podcast, but we're talking about the story because Newsweek's owners don't just have strange and deep ties to a Christian college. They are part of a new religious movement with major ties to Korean and American evangelicalism. For the three of us on this podcast today, this story isn't new. Ted wrote a major article in 2012 called The Second Coming Christ Controversy. Here is the deck. David Jang, and by the way, David Jang's name will come up a little bit later, has been an increasingly influential figure in Asian and now American evangelicalism. He and his followers have founded media outlets and a Christian college and are key influencers in the World Evangelical Alliance. But many say he leads a group that has encouraged the belief that he's the second coming Christ. Is there any truth to these allegations? As we noted previously, in 2014, Ben authored a piece for Mother Jones called Who's Behind Newsweek? Why are the new owners so anxious to hide their ties to an enigmatic religious figure? I have personally never reported on Jang or his media properties, but full disclosure, from 2013 to 2014, I worked as a reporter for the Christian Post, an online newspaper that is also closely connected to David Jang. Today, we'll talk about what sparked these pieces and what's happened in the years since these reports came out. We'll bring you up to date on what's happening now in this complicated story, and as usual, explain its significance to the evangelical community. Ted, as you know, this show always starts out with gut checks. 
just when we tell people how we really feel about the particular stories, you know, we have a lot to unpack here, but let's start with the gut check that pertains to this editorial note that was published on Newsweek's site last week. You know, I have a number of uh, Google News Alerts set up for uh, David Jang and for his various uh, media entities. The gut check on this one was that I was I was a little bit surprised. I mean, it, this is a story that uh, hit big in kind of media Twitter, and uh, a, a number of you know, media reporters uh, are definitely following the uh, Newsweek story very, very closely with some very good reports coming out uh, in a lot of different outlets. And it was like, wow, people are actually paying attention to this, and this actually may be a moment where a lot of the good reporting that's been done over the last uh, decade is finally paying off. It's always a little bit frustrating uh, as a reporter to devote a lot of time to an investigative report and then have it land very, very softly to not see a lot of the uh, the fruits of your of your of your work and to be like, I don't know if anyone cared about that story we put out into the world. And then so now to see it, you know, get referenced in a few of these other outlets and also just to see like, okay, now maybe something will happen with this David Jang community and people will understand what it's about. It's frustrating to see what's happening with Newsweek, but there's also a bit of a of a uh, happiness to see like some of this work may be actually making a difference. My gut check is definitely one where I'm like, wow, it's fascinating to see real life impact in real time. How often do you get to see stories actually leading to the ends of people's jobs that worked on them? Though in this case, arguably the people who should have lost their jobs did not lose their jobs. And the people who are trying to you know, follow through with ethical commitments that we have as journalists are the people who did pay the price for their jobs. But that is a fascinating thing to play out. I think similarly to you, I am really curious about what this is going to actually mean for this entire group of people that we'll be looking into really soon when there has been significant reporting that's come out about the wheelings and dealings that they have been involved with. And none of it has really seemed to been the thing that ultimately discredits them or makes their business model fall apart or, you know, prosecutes if appropriate. And so it'll be interesting to see where this goes. So, Ben, you know, today we're talking about something that is extremely complicated and probably really fresh and new for a lot of the listeners on the show. So I just want to start out by talking about who are the key players in this story that we need to know. From the Newsweek side of things, we have the Newsweek Corporation, of course, and a company above it called uh, IBT, International Business Times, which has recently rebranded itself as the Newsweek Media Group. That has been headed by um, a couple of people, three people actually, uh, a guy named Etienne Uzak, a guy named Jonathan Davis, and a guy named Dev Prad. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. but So these are three media executives who've been in charge of these companies that, that bought Newsweek in 2013. They, in turn, are connected to, this is all going to be very complicated, this is huge network, like web of connections with different groups and so on and so forth. But they're connected to an evangelical Christian college in California called Olivet University, which was founded by uh, a Korean pastor named David Jang. And I guess he, to me, has been sort of the focus of my interest in this story, but he hasn't really been, I think, much of a focus for people who are writing about the issue, people who are more interested in sort of the media industry implications of, of this story as opposed to getting uh, into, you know, who's behind Newsweek currently. Ted, are there any other names that you might add to that? Yeah, 
the main names you need to uh, understand, certainly David Jang, who is this uh, pastor from, from South Korea who's now U.S.-based. And then uh, a lot of names just to be aware of would be familiar ones to uh, maybe some of our listeners would be Christian Post and Christian Today, which is kind of the uh, U.K. version of the Christian Post, uh, not to be confused with Christianity Today. Uh, a lot of people do online get confused between Christian Today and Christianity Today. Uh, but this organization has a ton of different names, uh, has a lot of different businesses. They do tend to reuse some names. So Olivet is a, is a popular one, not to be confused with Olivet Nazarene University here in Illinois. But uh, Olivet uh, World Assembly is certainly one of their, uh, is kind of an umbrella group for a lot of their church based organizations. A lot of their uh, tech organizations start with Vera, V-E-R-E, Vera Media or associated names. But yeah, they they have a lot of things. They have uh, Jubilee is another one that you you see a lot of times. Jubilee World uh, is kind of a Christian music uh, company that they have. Recently bought the Orpheum Theater in St. Louis. But most of the, the kind of hub of a lot of their connections is this Olivet University that originally uh, San Francisco-based and now is building out into uh, New York State. I think that one thing I'd like to kind of clear up before we move any further is what is the connection between this Korean ministry and these Western media outlets? And what I mean by that is, are these Western media outlets, for instance, an extension of their ministry, or are they a money-making part of that ministry? My understanding is that uh, it really depends on whether you're looking at internal secret documents that we've seen at CT and that also were quoted uh, in some of Ben's reporting uh, at Mother Jones, and what you see externally and in some of their uh, PR things. Officially, there is not you know, a direct connection. You cannot look at uh, International Business Times, uh, About Us page, or even yes, their financial filings, and say, uh, you know, here is David Jang listed as uh, founder and, and president in the way that you can you know, open an issue of Christianity Today and see Billy Graham at the top of our kind of founder document. And when a few places have asked, you know, what is your connection with David Jang, Etienne, and, and Davis, and others have said, you know, he is, uh, he's our pastor, but uh, we don't have any, you know, we don't have any uh, real ties with him business-wise. But that also is not really the case if you look at some of the uh, internal documents. Uh, Jang has been very influential. He's, he's certainly can be considered founder of International Business Times. It was uh, his idea. He has uh, made a lot of decisions in terms of uh, the finances of the company, the uh, hiring of staff. I We didn't see a lot of evidence uh, of, of editorial decisions that he was making, but a lot of the, you know, who's going to run this? Who are we going to pull over from all of that university to, to work at uh, International Business Times? What students are we going to use? Under what circumstances uh, to work at some of these businesses? I think to get to the heart of your question, uh, why would this Christian university uh, start a company like IBT? And uh, the answer is is money. Uh, they saw it as a source of, of income that would help fund their ministries. And, and also, there's a lot, I think this is more the case perhaps as Christian Post, there is a lot of talk, was a lot of talk in the community about using these media properties as a way to kind of increase David Jang's influence in the world globally, really. And, you know, whether that would be through using the company as a way to introduce him and uh, his followers to uh, important people or to sort of change, you know, the the discourse that is happening around any number of subjects. Uh, I think ultimately there hasn't been, if you ask anyone who, who's worked at Newsweek, uh, there hasn't actually been much editorial interference, if, if any, from 
Davis or Uzak or certainly Jang. I think most people don't weren't even really aware that Jang uh, was affiliated with the company because his association is something that is denied. As Ted said, I mean, they say he's their pastor, but you know, in terms of his actual role in the company, uh, you know, IBT people there won't won't really admit that he had anything more than perhaps a kind of an advisory role. Yeah, I, I think that one thing I'd like to kind of pull out here for our listeners is why exactly this link might be seen as nefarious as opposed to just another media owner who happens to be in ministry or, or doing something religious. For me, it's, you know, there, there certainly you can point to organizations like the Washington Times, which is, you know, run by the Unification Church or had been uh, Unification Church, you know, the, the Moonies also uh, connected with uh, bought UPI, you know, that wire service. In some cases, uh, you know, uh, Christian Science Monitor was run by, you know, the Christian Science you know, church. But part of it also, part of the nefariousness is is the denial of undeniable uh, facts of the connections. Uh, that's one weird thing. Uh, another aspect for me is uh, what we focused on in the Christianity Today reports, which was uh, this community's belief that David Jang is not just, you know, their pastor, but many top people in this religious community have believed and have uh, encouraged others to believe that David Jang is what they call the second coming Christ, definitely a, a Messiah-type figure. Now, that's dif- different from the second coming of Christ. Uh, they believe he is a, a different figure from, from Jesus uh, of Nazareth, but that he is a uh, he is a second second coming Christ who has some sort of uh, messianic purpose in the world uh, right now. So that 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 to Christianity today is a uh, heretical belief that we were rather rather surprised by. Yeah, and um, I, I mean that of course is a concern. You mentioned uh, Reverend Moon of the Unification Church, and uh, although um, David Jang has disavowed his relationship with Moon, I mean he he was in fact a member of the Unification Church, quite closely involved, according to the findings of a, a Japanese court. So there's that aspect as well. And in fact, a lot of what he's been doing, you can kind of see as him modeling his behavior, whether it's buying media properties, you mentioned the Washington Times and UPI or or other activities involved in. Uh, he's been modeling himself on Reverend Moon, um, or at least that's what a lot of people who have been involved in the group believe. From my perspective, yeah, as Ted mentioned, one of the big issues here is transparency. As you said, you know, Christianity Today, it, it's upfront about the fact that Billy Graham was the, you know, the person who found it. In my own investigation, we found a lot of things that were, were frankly pretty disturbing. The fact that these groups were bringing people into the country illegally to work, essentially as I mean, slaves, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, they were paying them virtually nothing and just relying on the fact that they believed in David Jang as this messianic figure to essentially squeeze free free work out of them. And we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about people uh, washing dishes or something like that. We're talking about like really high end legal work, sometimes uh, programming, uh, journalism, a, a lot of, you know, sort of white collar jobs. You talked about all of it. University. And I'm just wondering, what do we know about Olivet University? I mean, I, I presume that it's accredited and that it is it functions as an actual university. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's honestly, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to professors who work there and 
there are real students there. Uh, they're taking real classes. But all of the students that attend all of that, at least as of 2014 when my article came out, were, were uh, members of this group. And they were almost to a person uh, working in uh, what they described as the business ministries of their affiliated with uh, David Jang's group. It is an accredited university. The accreditation, I mean, it raises a lot of questions, I think, about how universities are just accredited in general um, in the United States. There, particularly, this seems to be an issue with um, some, some religious universities, small religious colleges. But it's actually pretty easy to get an accreditation, as, as it turns out. And there are a number of colleges, not just religious ones, but uh, that tends to be the case, that people can pay to attend. They get a student visa, they come here, and then they, they work. And the universities are not really offering any classes or any kind of formal education. You know, they're just a convenient way for people to, to get a visa to come to the U.S. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But sorry, I just don't want to get into the whole question of immigration, which is a different topic Correct. altogether. But uh, <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the point is that these people are not coming here for the purposes that they uh, claim to be. And that seems to largely be the case with all of that, uh, even though it is accredited, even though there are actual classes and actual professors, uh, a lot of the activities that appear to be going on there at least a few years ago were, were not entirely above board. Olivet is not a member of the uh, CCCU, the uh, Council on Christian Colleges and Universities. It is a it is a fairly small uh, school, and it is uh, heavily foreign students, especially from East Asia, attending. Almost you know, exclusively. Yeah, almost exclusively. You know, this is not an organization you're going to hear about in a lot of our circles at CT. They're, I mean, they're not, you know, marketing to uh, American evangelical students. They're pretty much trying to attract uh, students from you know, Korea and, and Singapore and China and, and various places. We have an article in Christianity Today about you know how students from, especially from China, are becoming a much larger presence on Christian colleges. How how much Christian colleges are getting students from East Asia and are becoming increasingly dependent on those students because in, in most cases they they pay full tuition. All of that in some ways was a precursor to that, um, where there's you know a fair bit of money um, coming into the school from from the these these folks parents i i think Ben, your report had this as well. Uh, we talked to a number of students who came over. Their parents were already paying tuition, but the students would go back to their parents kind of over and over and over again, uh, asking for more and more money that they had indicated was for their for their all of that tuition, uh, but actually was going into uh, various uh, Jang related uh, businesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, that's that was something that I heard from a number of people um, as well. That's that's you know, there's a constant constant demand for for money on all of the members who are affiliated with Jang's groups. I mean, even even recently, um, I mean, haven't reported this, but, you know, I, I got a note from someone recently who told me that as recently as, uh, what was it, November, I think, or December, uh, they'd gotten a call to contribute, I think, I, I don't remember, a, a very large sum of money to the group. Um, and a lot of that is coming through all of that in the form of uh, tuition or donations. Like some of these media properties where, you know, Newsweek hired a lot of, especially initially once... Uh, IBT bought Newsweek. Uh, they populated it with a lot of very high-level journalists who were not at all part of the Jank network. In a similar way, there are people who uh, have worked for all of that who are not uh, necessarily part of Jank's 
church, there are a number of people who may be somewhat connected to to Jang, but who are who have not ever had a belief that Jang is the second coming Christ. So, and I would say there's a lot of people. This is apart from the Olivet thing. It's just larger in this kind of Jang network. Uh, there are a lot of people who attended, you know, some of these Jang churches or t- attended a number of these Jang related Bible studies who never heard or were never taught uh, or who were never encouraged to believe uh, that Jang was the second coming Christ. This was something. Uh, that by all accounts in our reporting was something that that you had you had to have gone through a lot of the of the Bible studies and a lot of these uh, what they called uh, these uh, three by three by three you know like nine hour a day uh, Bible study and prayer sessions and you would kind of gradually be led to this uh, more uh, increasingly kind of uh, apocalyptic Bible studies and and people would not kind of come out and say hey David Jang is the second coming Christ they would kind of lead you to you know these beliefs like there is going to be a second coming Christ and then it kind of when you would finish this program program, they would say, uh, you know, do you know who the second coming Christ is? And it would be up to the, the person to say, well, I, it must be David Jang. And then they would be told, well, now you have made the confession. Now you need to write this letter to Jang or to, to Jang's lieutenants saying, you know, I, I, I now realize that you, uh, that you are the second coming Christ. And kind of the uh, model that they're pointing to is kind of Peter's, Peter's confession to Jesus that he is the Christ. So there's a lot of people in this world uh, that we talk to which I talked to a lot of people who said, yeah, I, I did believe for, for quite some time that, that Jang uh, was the second coming Christ. Or I talked to one person who's like, I made the confession, but I never really believed it. And, and I talked to some other people that were like, I did never get I did never get that far. I didn't hear that. I had done some of the Bible studies, but I didn't ever hear that David Jang was the second coming Christ. So they seem to have closed that, that network. It seems to have stopped around the time that some of the reporting on the Jang community began. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of newer people brought into that that belief. Uh, so I think it's an open question a little bit about whether this group is a group that has a lot of businesses to kind of, with the end result being religious, you know, to proclaim Jang as this messianic figure, or whether the kind of messianic stuff in the Jang community uh, has served the purpose of building the business side of, of, of creating a lot of businesses. People work <laughs> will work harder and will work cheaper if they think they're working for a messiah than if they just think they're, you know, grabbing page views so we can sell more ads. That was something that had sort of been phased out because I think maybe perhaps it was considered too too radical. It was maybe drawing too much attention. Um, I, I can't really speak to the rationale. Yeah, I mean, I think the only person who actually knows the answer is David Jang himself. I mean, certainly he has been preaching. He preached this idea um, of there being a, you know, a flood. He was expecting a flood to come. I mean, he had this idea that, you know, the flood was not literal, but like a metaphorical one. It was a lot of information and it was as Ted said earlier it was going to result in some kind of a, an apocalypse and a new society was going to kind of rise up out of that and that society was going to you know uh, be led by the members of, of his group this is a question that I, I've asked myself as, as well you know like what what is the point of all of this at the end of the day um, I mean certainly they're making money but are they making money for Jang because does he really believe the stuff he's saying or is he just a, a, a huckster uh, I, I don't know yeah and it's curious also that we never found any indication that Jang himself made this you know said I am the second coming Christ there, he had a number of lieutenants and people who are very close to him 
him that kind of managed that that teaching. But you, there were, we got a lot of you know, formal denials of David Jang says, I, you know, he, I have, I've never teached this. And in fact, we did also in, in our reporting, I should say, I don't think I've mentioned his name. Ken Smith was my uh, co-author on uh, most of these CT articles. We also found indications of Jang formally saying, you know, I'm not I'm not the second coming Christ. You shouldn't you shouldn't be teaching this. That was odd, but we certainly see after that teaching that people were still being taught that. And the other thing is this group has never publicly or even, you know, in you know, formally or informally come out and said, yes, we held this belief and that was crazy and we've renounced it. Despite all the evidence and all of the people, you know, who've come out and said, I, I believed this, I was taught this, the top echelon of this of this group still claims that that was never a teaching in this group. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. This is Quick to Listen host Morgan Lee, joined by Trevin Wax, Bible and reference publisher for Lifeway Christian Resources and Holman Bibles. Hey, Trevin. Glad to be with you guys. How does one go about pulling together a translation team after they've announced that they're going to do a Bible translation? The original translation team was, you know, more than 100 scholars from more than 17 different denominations and non-denominational churches. You want Bible scholars who are experts in their fields. Also, you, you want people that are like-minded in their regard for the, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. One of our translation committee members talks about how, in one of the early meetings that he was in, how some of the other members of the translation committee, uh, when they were discussing sort of the weight and the responsibility of Bible translation were moved to tears and were weeping in those meetings, just thinking about the amazing privilege and honor and, and responsibility it is to translate the Word of God. This episode of Quick to Listen was brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com ct to find the right Christian Standard Bible edition for you. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. So I, I do want to, again, back up a little bit more, if only because part of the reason that we're talking about this story right now is that this ministry has made its way to the West in the past 15 years. What is your guys' understanding of what this ministry looked like before that? You know, I, I know in some of the reporting that I've seen, there's accounts of stuff happening in Japan and in China and in Singapore, if I recall correctly. So, you know, this is before that that seemed like there were these like dabbling in media or dabbling in higher education. And so are we just kind of to understand this as like one of many, maybe one of many Korean ministries that had picked up a following with different other Asian countries? It's a good thing to, to note that, I mean, this is, this is, a global uh, organization. It's literally everywhere. 
it's in Africa, it's in Eastern Europe, it's in Australia, uh, Singapore. It's, it's hard to say how many people are actually members. I don't think the membership is particularly large, but it's an extremely ambitious group. I mean, David Jang had this vision for having an all that campus in every country in the world and every state in the United States, which, I mean, in some ways you kind of have to, to, to laugh at, at that kind of an idea because it's such a grandiose one. But, uh, you know, I mean, in some ways they've been incredibly successful. Uh, they've really managed to, you, you look at the business they built with IBT. I mean, I, you know, I've been a journalist for a while now and in the last few years, I, people talk to me about IBT all the time, you know, um, because it's, it's everywhere. The origins of the group were in Korea. For whatever reason, I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, I've heard some theories. There are a lot of messianic groups in Korea, in in South Korea, I should say. And it spread from there, I think, first to China and and through Asia, as you said. But then, uh, yeah, into into Europe and and the Americas. Um, You know, the members in Argentina and Mexico. and and when we're talking about this type of stuff, are we are we talking about denominations? I mean, when I see something along the lines of second coming Christ, that that feels cult to me. But I don't know if there's other beliefs or practices that might have indicted them previously before that. The main aberrant teaching here is this this teaching that David Jang is the second coming Christ. The Bible studies that I saw uh, leading up to that teaching, and a lot of the sermons uh, that I uh, heard or saw transcripts of, you know, a lot of it is very orthodox. A lot of it is would you know fit very well with uh, a lot of evangelical teachings. They have a network of churches here that they just call Presbyterian. Yeah, it's a Presbyterian network, and in a lot of cases, you would look at their teachings and say, seems like another Korean Presbyterian church body. It seems all, all normal. Um, some of the practices have been similar to more what you would what you would call you know <laughs> traditional cults. I don't know if that's a, that that seems like an oxymoron, but certainly I heard from a number of, of former members who had been at um, University of California campuses, you know, foreign national students, and they were approached by someone from from the Olivet world. In, uh, encouraged to attend Bible studies, were increasingly isolated from their from their friends at this other campus, and then were fully drawn into this uh, all of that world. So that is kind of an approach that's shared by a number of cults or new religious movements or or whatever phrase you want to use. And what's interesting is uh, talking to we talked to some some folks who were Chinese, and they said, uh, you know, they were we were new to all of this. I mean, Christianity was entirely new. So they're like, you know, like you tell me that there was this guy 2000 years ago Jesus and that he was you know god and then he was <laughs> crucified and he came back 3 days later like the idea that this new guy is you know second coming christ that's not at all crazy compared to all the stuff that i was learning about what millions of christians believe uh, around the world so they're like it was a a fairly easy jump to hear about David Jang as a second coming Christ from the folks who had told me about, you know, Jesus as, as Lord. I wanted to bring up one thing that was pretty relevant to when I worked at the Christian Post, which was that the Christian Post offices were on the same floor as the World Evangelical Alliance, which from what I understand now working here at Christianity Today for the past couple of years is a a very important organization for us that we often use to kind of understand what other even who the other evangelical groups are in different countries around the world and to kind of give us a pulse about what evangelicalism looks like in some of these different countries. I'm kind of curious, Ted, about what you found out about this relationship between the WEA and David Jang and 
maybe what the current status of that is. People may be familiar with the National Association of, of Evangelicals here in the U.S. The World Evangelical Alliance is kind of the collection of all of those national associations worldwide. Uh, it's this big umbrella group. Fairly important over the years. Uh, and yeah, we did find, you know, when we did our, our reporting in, in 2012, the connections between uh, the WEA and, and the uh, uh, JANG community were uh, seriously, seriously intertwined. Most of the uh, WEA um, uh, communication staff uh, was provided or had come through uh, the Olivet Connections. A lot of the interactions that you would have with WEA uh, were people from Jank's community, uh, but even people who had not come out of Jank's community had developed uh, very strong financial ties to the Jank folks. So in some cases, uh, having having uh, their uh, apartment provided by the Jank community. So it was really close. And when as we started to do our reporting, there was strong defenses of the Jank community from uh, WEA leadership. That said, after our article came out, uh, there has been massive turnover at the WEA. Uh, the WEA in 2018 is is very different than the WEA in 2012, and it is uh, to me an open question about what what how uh, what those ties are currently. Uh, David Jang, I know, still has still has some ties, still ha- still has some connections, but you don't see the Jang connected names come up in press releases. Uh, you don't see WEA relying on Jang connected businesses for uh, web design quite so much and, and all of these things. So uh, has there been a distancing? I, I don't know. Uh, but there certainly is a, a difference in in personnel. I would definitely characterize it as a, as a, as a, as a different relationship in 2018. Are there any other notable footholds in the mainstream evangelical world that you would like to point out? It's tricky, right? Because we're Christianity Today, and the Christian Post is another media organization. And one of the responses that they have had throughout all of our reporting is, oh, CT, uh, Christianity Today is just, just jealous. They, they're just trying to attack one of their competitors. You know, this is you know, flatly untrue. But that's one of the arguments that they have made. But it is interesting when we were doing some of our our look at uh, the Christian Post and what the Jang connections were with the Christian Post. There's a number of people at the Christian Post, a lot of people at the Christian Post, who, you know, are unaware of Jang connections. Their executive editor is Richard Land, who was, you know, one of the most prominent Southern Baptist uh, leaders. He had the uh, position that Russell Moore uh, now has as head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And certainly he was, you know, he was on, you know, paid staff as executive editor of the Christian Post. There were other people on the editorial board uh, of the Christian Post that when we contacted them, they, they were unaware that they were on the editorial board of the Christian Post. Uh, <laughs> and there were other people who said, yeah, I think I was asked to do something once upon a time, but I haven't heard from them in, you know, several years. So, um, yeah, so the relationships between some top evangelical leaders and the David Jang community, uh, sometimes they're very, sometimes they're much closer than you think. And sometimes people are surprised that they appear on websites uh, or appear to be endorsing this group. And again, I, I do think things have shifted a little bit since some of these reports have come out. They have, there has been some quietness, although there are a lot of things about this group that seem to be going underground. And then all of a sudden they bought Newsweek. Ben, maybe you can bring us up to speed right now and, and say what's kind of going on with the district attorney in New York. Yeah, I wish I knew. Um, I mean, there's an investigation into Newsweek or the Newsweek Media Group, more specifically the company that, that owns Newsweek magazine. I have had a little bit of, of insight into what's going on through some connections I made when I was reporting the previous article. but. Um, 
I can't say really anything more than what's what's been in the media already, which is basically that there was a raid on Newsweek's offices by the uh, New York District Attorney, and apparently they were interested in some computer servers that were in the office. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago that uh, suggested that perhaps this raid was related to questions um, about some loan fraud that may have occurred and that that fraud is related to those servers. I suspect I've been looking, you know, through some public documents related to their finances and it seems that the servers were paid for by by loans from some small regional banks. That's something that the Wall Street Journal mentions as well. It looks like there's a company called Oikos Networks that's affiliated with the community. And one of the things that's quite interesting is that the community relies almost entirely on businesses that its own members have set up. So, I mean, they have a development corporation that takes care of developing properties that they've purchased. They have a law firm that helps them um, with their legal issues. And they have this company, Oikos Networks, which takes care of the back-end uh, part of their business, you know, servers and so on and so forth. So uh, it, it seems that... It, it might be related to that. I, I'm uh, aware that there was previously a federal investigation into Olivet, but I, I think that that has uh, kind of never, never really went anywhere. So it's it's hard to know what's going what's going to happen. Um, it seems likely that uh, there could be some kind of criminal charges brought at some point. And this has apparently been a two-year investigation. And you know, when an investigation goes on that long, and you have a, a a raid on your offices, you can only assume that quite serious. So who knows? I think that Ted has mentioned a couple of small impacts that he's seen since we at Christianity Day dug around a little bit into this story. But I'm just curious, Ben, what small impacts may you have seen as a result of your reporting? The thing for me that's been most gratifying is I, I get regular letters from people who uh, read the report and as a result decided to uh, leave the group. And that's the reason why I wrote the article was was because I was hoping that people like the woman um, who I I met who first told me about this group, you know, they'd be able to read it and that would give them the courage to make a decision perhaps to to leave. And, you know, I'm not saying it's bad for everyone. It it may not be, but um, a lot of people that I've spoken to about it uh, tell me that it had a profoundly negative impact on their life. Would either of you guys like to make predictions about where the story will end up? (laughs) I, you know, I'm, I'm circumspect about making predictions because, uh, I thought that things were going to break loose a few years ago. Uh, all of that brought, bought some property, uh, in New York state, this, uh, former, uh, psychiatric hospital, very old, fairly decrepit building that had a ton of asbestos. And they uh, got in a lot of trouble with the EPA and with OSHA about the removal of that asbestos, which was done uh, extremely illegally and in an extremely unsafe way. And they were facing a multimillion dollar fine for that. Uh, And I thought, well, maybe maybe something will will happen now. And that fine was knocked down. It seems to have all been fairly much taken care of. Even when Ben's Ben's article, I thought, okay, now this is getting you know, more serious attention. Uh, maybe we'll see some something happen. The Newsweek aspect does seem to have escalated this in a, in a significant way. The DA's office looking at the New York DA's office looking at this. That is you know, 
more significant than just an article coming out here and there. This may be real. This may actually make a serious effect in this organization's ability to operate. But I have I've seen this organization succeed where I where I expected them to be on the on the on the downswing a number of times, and and uh, so I <laughs> I'm loath to make predictions. It's really remarkable. They're incredibly incredibly slippery. I mean, they're uh, they've managed to just come through so much um, and survive, it, it thrive even. Um, this seems like it, it may be kind of the the last curtain um, on you know, David Jang's kind of play here, but uh, it's it's just really hard to say. You know, I, you know, I think we demonstrated pretty clearly in um, the article that, that I wrote that he was behind a lot of what was going on there. But you know, even now when you read the articles uh, people are writing, they act as though it's an open question. So I, I, I do think that there will be consequences for someone, but I do kind of wonder, you know, who those people will be. And I, I don't necessarily think it's going to be uh, maybe the people who are masterminding the whole operation, whoever, whoever they might be. Well, and it seems if anything is going to end, it may just be the American chapter, given that you mentioned how, how big this ministry empire is at a global level. Yeah, and we should mention that Jang, he's around 70 years old uh, at this stage. So, But he could live 30 more years. Billy Graham just Billy died Graham died at, at 99. 99. That's true. But there's a timetable. There's a clock ticking at that stage. All right. Before we conclude this podcast, I'm just curious, should I mention anything about my own experiences at working at Christian Post? Well, I mean, do you have experience? I mean, I'm, yeah. I am curious if... Uh, if Definitely. I, I, I'm interested in, in what you saw there, especially in terms of the, uh, the leadership there. So as I mentioned earlier, I worked at the Christian Post from August 2013 to August 2014. And that was leading up to when I joined at Christianity Today. As I've mentioned to some of my current colleagues now, there were at times where I didn't know if something was the result of incompetence or some sort of larger conspiracy that makes any sense. So for instance, there was not a strong effort to kind of build camaraderie or to train reporters or to really grow people's skills. And that was unclear if that was just because management had other things that they had to work on or if they legitimately just needed us to get traffic by whatever means necessary. And so there wasn't a real point in investing in us. I know that some of the reporting at IBT has focused on different traffic targets that reporters had to hit. We were encouraged to get about 200,000 views for our articles for the month that was like supposed to be the monthly goal. And then traffic above that was rewarded with different bonuses. There were times I don't think where I hit my goal, but I was not penalized. The pay was not fantastic, but again, that's actually really hard in this day and age to know whether that is a result of them abusing you or because journalism is just a very tricky profession and it's challenging to compensate people for that. Right, especially in that period. I mean, you know, that this was the age of, uh, you know, get as many page views as you possibly could and click farms and that, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Was that, I mean, that it was, it was quantity over quality is, is, is what you're saying, which it certainly wasn't unique to the Christian Post. Sure, and I know that at various times if you can find Christian Post if you're looking for some sports events to watch and there's very clear articles that were set up just to to grab Google's attention. But those were rarely written by people who were on the reporting and editorial staff. So, or at least the people that were in the newsroom physically with me were not the people that were doing these things that were so obviously a way to just get clicks in there. I do know that um, Ted is right about the narrative 
that was peddled about Christianity Today being jealous of the Christian post. I remember having a conversation with one of my editors about that and that that was the stance that he took on that. I mean, overall, I actually thought it was it wasn't an unpleasant experience. I, I tell people that the best office that I ever had was in there because we overlooked the World Trade Center Memorial and had like giant windows, which I don't have a window in my office right now. So (laughs) (laughs) that's nice. And the other interesting thing was that it was an incredibly diverse newsroom when it came to our reporting staff. And I think that was because that they didn't necessarily care about pedigree in the same way that other places might care about prestige and pedigree. They needed people, again, who were going to churn out articles, even if they weren't going to be that super low-hanging fruit. And so we had different people from around the world and some people who had had journalism experience and some people who really hadn't that had that much journalism experience. But it was actually kind of cool to be with, you know, I the person who sat next to me, for instance, her parents were Zambian, but she was Australian. That was interesting, you know, and I had a couple of colleagues who were Caribbean American and my one of my closest friends in the newsroom was also a Bulgarian national, too. So that was interesting. As far as people who worked on the IT side, that was a department that we really didn't interface with at all. It seemed that most of them were Korean nationals that didn't spend that much time interacting maybe ever with us reporters that were in the newsroom. But because of language barriers and seemingly just office culture barriers, there wasn't time that we would have connected with them very much. But that was kind of my experience of of being there. Well, one of the things we hear about Newsweek a lot is that you know the publishers seem not to know much about about the journalism uh, side, and there seem to just be kind of a, a secret group. Now, there's a lot of businesses that can make that complaint. Too a lot of media businesses that can make that complaint. I am interested. I mean, you know, I know there are a number of people closely connected to the Jang community. You know, who were in top positions. You know, Michelle Vu, for example, at the Christian Post, and, and, and others. I'm curious, were they fairly active in telling you what to write about, or was it you could write about whatever you wanted, so long as you hit your page view targets? I could write about a lot of things. If anything, it felt like maybe we don't want to promote this because it's outside of what evangelicalism is supposed to promote on this type of issue. But there was not a lot that would suggest that there was something larger than in a American Christian conservative type of approach. But even that wasn't like too strictly enforced. The only thing I'll just say is that there's a line in Ben's piece that says, Andrew Clark, the man who registered IB Times in the United Kingdom had registered all of its UK campus in 2006. And that was my supervisor and my boss. Um, Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of staff. I mean, you, you found this as well, Ben, right? That like people are moved all around these businesses all the time, depending on what's making money or hemorrhaging money or, or, or whatever, which is one of the things that makes the claim that like, Oh, there's no real ties between all of it and some of these properties or between Jang and any of these properties. Uh, weird is you're like, well, you know, Hey, you're married to this person. You used to be the treasurer of this organization. You used to be, you know, the secretary of this organization. Uh, that's one of the weirdest things is amid a paper trail. The response has often been to deny that the paper trail exists. Given that, you know, your piece came out while I worked there and that Ted's came out before that, there was sometimes the sense of like, well, how would I tell of like Andrew was acting weird <laughs> or like, right. how would I, how would there be any other telltale signs? I mean, most of the time we just ended up talking about soccer, for instance, because he was a huge soccer fan. Right. Yep. You know, so anyway, that was just kind of my more germane experiences. Um, all right. Well, thank you all for this really fantastic discussion Since this has been a really long discussion, we're just going to breeze through the next part of the podcast, which is called Precious Moments. 
Precious Moments is when I ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Ted. Putting together the uh, commemorative issue uh, on on Billy Graham, uh, that's something that, you know, there, there are two projects over my tenure at CT that I've worked on for a very long time. And one was this, the David Jang investigation that we've been talking about. But the Billy Graham special issue was much longer in the making. I started working on that you know, nearly a decade and a half ago and uh, had some amazing contributors to that, many, some of whom have passed on by now, like uh, John Stott and uh, Chuck Colson and, and Richard John Newhouse. It was an honor to put that together uh, over the years, and I am, I'm thrilled to see it uh, going out into the world. So my precious moment, really, uh, sorry to make it worky, uh, but I am uh, really happy to see that serious celebration of Graham's life come out. Awesome. Ted, where can people find you? My Twitter handle is at Ted Olson. That's O-L-S-E-N. For anyone that's interested in this particular magazine, I'm just going to make a note to this. If you are currently a subscriber, you will actually get this magazine as your April issue. If you would just like more information about the issue as a standalone piece, you can go to orderct.com slash Billy Graham. All right, Ben, do you want to go? Uh, yeah, although it's going to start in kind of a dark place. Uh, it, it, gets to, it gets to a happy one. Um, I, I was traveling uh, last week in uh, Xinjiang, which is in China's far west, and it's home to a, an ethnic minority group known as the Uyghurs, who are experiencing some really severe oppression at the hands of uh, the Chinese government now. And I hope that your listeners will take some some interest uh, if they get the chance in them and, and seek out some information about them because they're they're being persecuted for their religious beliefs. But uh, while I was there, I had the opportunity to travel to a place called Shipton's Arch, which is the world's largest natural sandstone arch, big enough to uh, fit the Empire State Building under it. You can fly a Wow. A passenger plane through it. Yeah. And it's just, it was a reminder that, you know, even in a place where there's a lot of darkness, uh, there's also can be a lot of beauty. Awesome. Where can people find you online? My Twitter handle is at Benjamin Dooley. That's uh, Benjamin, D-O-O-L-E-Y. All right. My precious moment was the fact that I got to go on a run yesterday in a t-shirt and shorts, <laughs> which is not bad for February. Spring is coming. Well, I'm I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that spring is here right now, and I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts, <laughs> and it's probably not coming. But it was great to just be outside, and I got to then sit outside after I went on my run and talk to my friend, which I was like, oh, yes, I just love being outside so much. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Ted, it's been great to have you on. Ben, thank you so much for making it work with us all the way from Beijing. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. You can support the podcast by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and become a subscriber, or you can go onto Apple Podcasts and you can rate and review the podcast and give us your feedback. That really helps a lot. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.